I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello. So if you've been listening to the Slow Newscast for a while now, you might have gotten the idea that we like to do things a bit differently. We don't do breaking news. Instead, we investigate stories that take a bit longer, stories that reveal what's driving the news. And at Tortoise, the newsroom where I work and the newsroom where all the brilliant reporters who you hear on this show week to week work, we also think that slowing down means staying the course and following a story. Has anything changed? Has there been any accountability or a reckoning? And where do we go from here? I'm Basha Cummings, and this week on the Slow Newscast, we've got a special episode called Left to Die, The Next Chapter. We're looking back at one of our investigations to find out what happened next. So we're going back to a really harrowing story that I reported last summer called Left to Die. It was a series in three episodes about what happened when a Western energy giant tried to establish itself in a dangerously unstable region in Mozambique where extremists were on the rise. And it was a story of what happened to the people who were left behind as violence erupted. 200 civilians who were left under siege by an armed militia. But it was about so much more than that too. It was about colonial capitalism and corporate responsibility and about what happens when a $20 billion gamble goes really badly wrong. Here's a taste of how the investigation unfolded. One of our guys, a local guy from Pemba, uh, got a phone call from his uncle who's in the military. He came running into the, the camp and said, guys, um, they're attacking Palmer. At around three o'clock, it happened. Al-Shabaab attacked Palmer. They shut off the main routes in and out of the area and they shot indiscriminately. The town was in panic. Both Wes and Nick, in charge of around 65 people between them, suddenly had to move and move quick. And we just drove as quick as we could. Every, there was people running from the west into town and there was people running through town towards the beach. We just got into, into Amarula and the shooting started around the hotel. Everyone is lying on their stomachs on the floor of the hotel bar, this straw roof above them. Every so often, you can hear the sound of mortar shells landing and you can see the people in the video flinching. That's when a hell of a lot of shooting started. Thousands of gunshots. 
By Thursday, the numbers inside the hotel had grown to over 200. Wes and Nick were awake in the early hours at around 4 or 5 a.m. and they were struggling to sleep. But they figured the military would be there soon. And this is really where each step of this story just seems to get worse and worse. Because what they didn't know, or at least they didn't fully understand at that time, was that the militants were busy blocking the roads. Better armed and organised than the army itself, they had made the chance of any land rescue much too dangerous. So to get out, they were going to need choppers. Helicopters began to land on the helipad just behind the hotel, lifting people out. But during the course of the day, there were a couple of choppers that were able to lift people out. I mean, the first chopper took the administrator and, and his family. He didn't waste any time. Thursday, we were still thinking, you know, someone out there was making a plan and that our rescue was, was being organized. I mean, that subsequently turned out to be, nothing. I mean, no one was organizing anything. It's now Friday, the 26th of March, day three. Yeah, Friday was bad. So Robbie said to us that, you know, there's this option, but they can only fetch the expats. And we declined on that. So we said, forget it. Then there was no plan at all. It was at that point we realized, you know, we've been abandoned. It's a hard thing to imagine as somebody who grew up in the West, to imagine that you would just be left to die. But it's an important point to acknowledge here in this story, to confront head-on. It's a point about privilege. As a foreign contractor, you'd assume, wouldn't you, that efforts would be made to come and save you, that your employer would organise something or embassies would kick into gear, that there would be levers to pull. It wasn't the same, of course, for the Mozambican civilians, people who lived in the remotest, poorest region of the country who were used to being forgotten. We realised we left with one option, and that is to try and break through with a, with a convoy. And it was the foreign contractors who came up with the convoy idea. They were the ones with the satellite phones, and after all, the cars belonged to them or their companies. They were trying to reach the mercenaries, DAG, the Dyke Advisory Group, to see if they could provide air cover if they did decide to drive out. In a video that Wes shared, you can see a mishmash of vehicles, just enough to cram 150 civilians in. No bags, they say to people. They're going to take up too much space. In total, around 17 vehicles left the Amarula Hotel in a convoy late afternoon on Friday, the 26th of March, just before the sun began to set. It's going to be the drive of your life, right? I remember when we pulled out there, that was just... From that moment we pulled out there, it was just terrifying. And, you know, Adrian put his foot down and we were going as fast as we could without crashing. You know, it's a dirt road. You know, we're going 100 k's an hour down this road and there's just a lot of dust in front of us of from the cars ahead of us. Wes and Adrian's car had made it through the first ambush. They were heading to a quarry nearby where they thought that they could make a run to the beach and get picked up from there. Adrian had his foot on the accelerator they were racing to get to safety. They fired into the car and the, the side window smashed. And um, I just remember Adrian screaming, I'm hit, I'm hit. 
And he's saying, guys, I can't, I can't drive. You need to take over. Everyone's shouting back to him, just keep on driving. And he says, I can't, I'm going, I'm going. Wesley jumped out and pulled his brother from the front seat. He started driving himself with Adrian now sitting behind him. When we came to a stop at the quarry there, turned off the car and I just looked back at my brother and yeah, he was already dead at that time. There was so much blood everywhere. At that stage there, Martin had a satellite phone and uh, he went into a little opening and uh, he phoned his uh, company up in Joburg and told them what had happened. And um, they said to him, just stay there. They're going to try to get hold of Dag to come in and rescue us in the morning. They spent the night sleeping, exhausted, traumatised in the bush. And on Saturday morning, Wes woke up at 5am and finally the rescue came. But before he agreed to be taken anywhere, he asked the pilots to make him a promise. Before I got on the chopper, I, I made them promise that um, I'm, not going, I'm not getting on the chopper without them coming back to fetch my brother, which the guard did. Back in the UK, Tori Hickson, Nick's partner, was in the dark about what was happening. All she could do was wait. Nick was in the last car of the convoy to leave the Amarula. My colleague was driving, I was in the passenger seat, and it all just happened so quickly. You know, suddenly everyone was driving off. By now, they're separated from the main convoy. Nick's vehicle was hit by an ambush almost immediately. And the bullets were cracking past us. We decided to get out of the car. So we were in this gully next to the runway, but we had to make it across this runway, 120 metres of open ground. And that's where I think we, we stood the best chance of getting hit. The bullets were flying so close to us. Nick, his colleague Niraj Ramligan and a Mozambican security guard managed to make it to the other side. They crawled into the undergrowth surrounded by insurgents who had just fired at them. We waited till it was dark. You know, the best route seemed for us to head west up into, there was like this long hill. By now, Nick was half naked. They hadn't eaten anything since Wednesday afternoon, two days before. Some of this information was now starting to filter out into the world and to Tori. We heard quite quickly that not all the cars had made it. We didn't know which cars had. We didn't know who was in which cars. I, I can't explain to you what that feels like not to know. You know, just not to know. But Nick and Niraj, they couldn't just sit and wait. They needed to try to catch the attention of the aircraft overhead. So we spent most of Saturday trying to get the attention of the choppers and the spotter plane. Tori, Nick's partner, knew none of this. She got a call from Nick's daughter asking her to fly out to Johannesburg from the UK. Saturday morning, Jade said to me, can you get here? And I was like, yes, I can. And I flew on Saturday night. I didn't know if he was, I didn't know if I was going to a funeral or a, a reunion. 
Out in the bush, Nick and Niraj had made the decision to follow the soldiers, to walk with them back to a fungi where the total compound was. But to do this, they'd need to walk straight through Parma, or what was left of it. I heard the spotter plane, and I just ran outside. And as I ran out, one of the dag choppers flew past me. They saw me. And two, three minutes later, they were on the ground picking us up. Can't tell you the relief. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. At the end of the series, we heard about how Wes and Nick escaped the horror in Parma. Wes had made it to safety, but he had experienced the terrible death of his brother Adrian, and Nick had been rescued by a helicopter and reunited with his family. Over the months afterwards, I've stayed in touch with them both. We text each other and send each other updates. And after nearly a year of messages and missed meeting attempts due to COVID and sick dogs, Nick and I finally managed to meet in person a few weeks ago while he was in London. For me, I have to say it was incredibly emotional and I gave him a huge hug, which I'm not sure that he was quite expecting, and we caught up. You're finally here. So tell me, what's the last year been like for you? since we spoke very difficult trying to um, initially after the attack come to terms with what had happened I think psychologically it it took a lot of time with close friends and family and uh, and with a therapist to just deal with uh, the mental trauma and the the fear that came out of the attack I didn't you know, as a man and as a guy, you're trying to be the strong one and say that it's that it's you know brush it off and sort of carry on with your life. But it it really isn't that straightforward. Well, it wasn't for me. So fortunately, with some good um, relationships and you know, with a trauma counsellor, came out the other side and from that side of things feel very strong. But uh, the knock-on effects and the financial losses for the business and the mess that that all created has been some big issues to deal with. So tell me about that because basically during and after the attack you just had to, you everything that you were doing there was just left and you haven't been able to go back because the situation in that part of Mozambique is still really volatile. Yes, yeah, so on the day of the attack we... I mean, we left the gates open and drove out, and for months that's how the property stayed. After the attack, there was a lot of ransacking and theft that took place throughout Palmer. It wasn't as bad as we had expected. They shot holes through (laughs) a lot of things, including our water supply, but they stole all of the, uh, the generators, the tools, and then, of course, the weather. It's quite a hostile environment for anything metal being on the coast it's very humid so all of our materials at you know either baking in a container or sitting out in the sun for the last 18 months so what kind of a financial hit are you taking if you just have well, to abandon all of so that so there was the the total loss of about a million pounds worth of stock 
that order book that we had for the project, building various camps and site offices for the project, you know, was just eliminated immediately. And with the project not starting again anytime soon, all of that income and moment, that business momentum, um, you know, was switched off. And have you had any clear message from Total that they're going to restart or that that business is coming back to, to the peninsula? No. Um, we're in fairly regular contact with people and it just seems that the security situation doesn't allow for that. You know, I can understand the reluctance to go back if there's any any risk to people. And so in in that part of northern Mozambique there are still attacks it's still a dangerous Yeah, Pemba, uh, sorry, Palmer is still, my understanding is it's still under the control of the Rwandan military, and it is a lot safer than it was, so that people have returned to the village, and I think some of the hotels have reopened, but it's very quiet. Talking to security experts, they'll say, yeah, it's, it's a lot safer than it was, but it's it's not at the point where they would recommend going and working there and there's no work to do but further south from Palmer down towards um, the town of Muerda and Montepoez and the graphite region there have been attacks ongoing attacks very recently and do you know if the Amaruda has reopened yeah we heard that well they have reopened and that uh, Robbie returned and um what I heard was they were they had some NGOs staying there, and they kind of patched up the the hotel. Gosh! So Robbie, the hotel manager who helped evacuate the dogs, yes. is back. Yes, you know he has subsequently said, well, he only decided to leave when he heard that the rest of us were going to well, that's what form he the convoy told and me. Leave. Yeah, but it was uh, you know it was kind of the from our side, the opposite. His departure is sort of what was the final decision for us to form a convoy and leave. But now that you're over a year after the attack, has your thinking about what happened in that time changed or have you have you got a different lens on it now that, than you did when we last spoke? Definitely changes what you think is important. Uh, family, friends, you know, time to do what you want to do and really enjoying things in the moment because you do realize just how short you know life can be you know and for that I'm very grateful in a way you know for the event the thing is that you know life still goes on and you got to make sure that you don't lose the the value of something like that you know you wish you could just make a whole new beginning after an event like this but you do still have the practicalities of life and making a living and fighting with insurance companies and trying to salvage a business, which have got to be done. Who are you most angry at? When I think back, uh, you know, my, I'm still very angry at, you know, at Total um, in particular, and the Amarula as well, but you know, my feeling is that Total had the had the ability to do something about our situation. I understand the challenge of being a corporate and having to operate in a 
difficult environment like Mozambique, but I would have thought that under the circumstances of March last year that, um, you know, people's lives, contractors and the civilians in Palmer would have come before reputational issues, and it's clear that they didn't. Um, you know, had this happened in, you know, even North Africa or Eastern Europe, it wouldn't have faded away the, had, the way it has now. But because it's in a dark corner of Africa, you know, it's these things fade away and, you know, one wonders if there'll ever be justice for the people who lost their lives. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. For Wes, the last year has been really up and down. After he escaped the terror attack, he returned home to South Africa. And in the weeks and months after, he really struggled with the trauma of what happened with the loss of his brother and with anger. His company, Cube Modular, was struggling financially. All of their kit, which was camps for thousands of workers, which was a huge investment for them, was just left rusting on the edge of the Total Gas compound. And Wes, I mean, he's been trying his best to hold everything together. He moved to be closer to Adrian's wife and children. But things have been difficult. They've gone pretty sour with his company. He's no longer in charge. But to my surprise, he messaged me a few weeks ago on WhatsApp to say that he was back in Mozambique, which is the first time that he's returned there since the attack. So... I arrived back in Pemba today. We managed to get some of our stuff, um, well, what's left of our assets out of Palma, which cost us a lot of money. And uh, the whole place just feels like there's a cloud over it. Honestly, it's heartbreaking. It's uh, A lot of the stuff is completely destroyed and um, stolen and damaged, but it's at least something. So... The idea is we at least use what, what's left over to start again somewhere else. 
He told me that it was a really heavy trip for him, obviously bringing back a lot of really traumatic memories of what happened in March last year. He was back at the airport where he saw his brother's body being loaded into the aeroplane after they were rescued. I was extremely emotional. It felt like I was, like I had taken a tranquilizer. It just didn't feel real. It was surreal, yeah? When I arrived at the airport, that's where... Um, The first flashbacks came back, you know, just brought back all those bad memories. And while he was there, there were continued attacks. He was still getting advice on where he could safely go and where he couldn't. So the region is still incredibly volatile. The insurgents actually attacked a few villages uh, between 40 and 20 kilometres outside of Pemba, which Pemba was always considered the safe area. After they attack cars and people on the road, then they just disappear into the into the bush like ghosts. Kind of reminds me of um, what was happening up in Palma. So I don't know what's the future here of the people and uh, stuff, but one thing I do know for sure is that uh, people are suffering. It was not easy, but um, maybe it's just one of those things that I need to face and uh, can make me stronger at the end of the day. Neither Nick, Wes or any of the other victims of the siege of the Amarula Hotel have really recovered from what happened there. But I think where the physical scars have now healed, the financial and the psychological toll is really only just setting in. One thing that really surprised me is that the Amarula Hotel is now open again. The general manager who came in for a lot of criticism at the time of the attack for escaping with the dogs and leaving many people stuck there. He's back working there. So in some ways, there's this continuity, which feels really surreal. Although Total have not given any clear answer on whether they're going to resume uh, work on the on the gas project. So one of the things that Nick said to me while we were speaking, which has really piqued my interest and I think feels like the natural place to go next with this story, is he said that there is a graphite mine further inland in northern Mozambique where Tesla has recently announced that it will be purchasing 80% of the graphite that comes out of this mine, though they've said they won't be purchasing it directly from Mozambique, they're going to go through a third party. The reason that they want this graphite is because it's used in the electric uh, vehicle batteries that they use for their Tesla cars. I think so many of the questions that we asked of Total about responsibility, about what you owe to local people when things go right, but also when they go wrong, about what the Mozambican government is able to promise to people and to companies when they have these incredibly lucrative resources. All of that will come back into play when Tesla starts buying the proceeds of that mine in 2025. So that, I think, is where I'm going to go next. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed going back to revisit one of the stories that we really care about. This episode of the Slow Newscast was produced by Imi Harper. The sound design was by Phil Sansom. The editor was David Taylor. And it was presented by me, Basha Cummings. See you next week.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, you like our stories, you like our investigations, and you want to support us and you want to get more of what we do, then you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thank you, and I'll see you next Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolf. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it and how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode. Next week.